Welcome back. It's been a while since we released an episode of Taxed Enough already, and being that we only talk about the action-packed topics of taxation, economics, and high finance, I'm sure everybody has just been anxiously waiting for the next one. So, here we are. And today, we're going to talk about something that the media may have forgotten about, but we have not. And that's because it's something we deal with every day, and that is inflation. So we'll discuss the basics of inflation, what causes it, how it's impacting consumers, how it's impacting employers, and some historical trends that might give us an idea of what to expect. Keyword being might, because I'm going to adhere to the age-old saying of past performance is not a guarantee of future results. And lastly, we'll give some insight into some actions that both the consumer and the employer could potentially take that might aid during these trying times. Now, as someone with a formal education in economics and an in-depth understanding of how mundane of a topic economics can be, I'd like to say I'm a little surprised at how controversial of a topic inflation has become. However, nothing surprises me in the world we live in today, and if there's one thing we know for certain, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. The powers that be will do whatever they can to make it politically divisive. So in our effort to keep this based on facts, we'll give you access to all the sources in which we've pulled any data from, and you can see those sources on the original posting on our website. So wherever you're watching or listening to this, there is a link to that somewhere close by. So let's jump into it. In order for us to have a strong grasp on inflation, we need to have a very in-depth understanding of what money actually is. And money, or currency, in our case the dollar, it's the tangible concept that we use to assign value to products and services. So what do I mean by a tangible concept? Well, numbers are actually not tangible. Numbers are a concept. And if something is a concept, it is by nature intangible. So money, or the dollar, is what we use to make a number tangible. Or in the case of our economy, it makes assigned value tangible and exchangeable. So what's the point of all this? I promise there is a method to my madness. It's not just so I can hear myself talk. If the dollar is what we're using to measure an assigned value, then what's a dollar worth? Well, conceptually, a dollar isn't worth anything because the dollar does not have value. It represents a value. This might give you a deeper grasp on why some people can be so obsessed with money or expensive commodities like luxury cars, designer brands, etc. Because now that we have a deep understanding of this, people don't necessarily want luxury cars and designer brands because they do more than a practical car, or vehicle, or brand. These luxury items portray that that individual is someone who has or creates a lot of value. This is the same reason some people chase titles and status. If you have a job title that's tied to a high income, then it's portraying that you're a person of high value. But I don't want to get too off topic. So now that we have a very in-depth understanding of what money actually is, we can have a deep understanding of what inflation is. So what is inflation? Well, the textbook definition, or at least according to dictionary.com, inflation is a persistent substantial rise in the general level of prices related to an increase in the volume of money and resulting in the loss of value of currency. Don't get too stuck on how the term value is being used here. 
It may seem like it contradicts but what we just discussed, but I promise you it doesn't. What we should focus on here is an increase in the volume of money, which does what? Makes currency less valuable. Or really, you need more of it to portray that assigned value. So at its core, inflation is rising prices, but what causes inflation? We've heard many divisive talking points in terms like corporate greed, but now that we have a strong grasp on this topic, we understand that claiming that the record amount of inflation we've recently experienced cannot be blamed on one solitary factor like corporate greed. I don't want to harp on this too much, but if corporate greed was the cause of inflation, then we wouldn't be seeing record rates of inflation. The rate of inflation we'd be seeing would just be typical. The main goal of any corporation, at least for-profit corporations, is to make as much money as they can, i.e. greed. It also doesn't explain why in 2022, a year in which we saw a 40-year record high rate of inflation, corporate bankruptcies increased by 20%, or why in the past three years, more than 80 companies with a market value of over a billion dollars permanently shut their doors, or why over 52% of the companies on the Fortune 500 list have disappeared in the past 20 years. For every corporation that has been profitable or greedy, I can show you one that has not been profitable, or at least hasn't succeeded in their corporate greed. For every corporation that has been profitable, I can show you one that isn't. So what's the actual cause of inflation? Well, there's a multitude of factors that have exasperated the issue. COVID caused the greatest drop in GDP since World War II, which is a substantial factor considering that normally, even in down markets, GDP still increases just at a slower pace. We dealt with some of the greatest supply chain shortages since our last World War, but the biggest factor, as we alluded to when covering the definition of inflation, is a historic amount of newly minted currency and a reduction or decrease in our GDP. Now you may have heard some talking points like 35% of the money currently in circulation was printed in the last year. I even ran across articles like these that I'll attempt to show you if they load which show a 40% increase in the past 12 months or this article here showing 80% of all US dollars in existence were printed in the last 22 months. While this is misleading in a sense, as far as we can tell, it's referring to physical dollars, not all currency currently in circulation, which is probably why you don't see many sources in these articles. And the sources that you do see tend to be to other articles, not an actual data source. So yes, the physical, meaning actual paper money supply, did greatly increase. However, it's not nearly as significant as many sources have portrayed. Considering that anywhere from 10 to 30% of all financial transactions are now in some digital format, like a debit card or EFT, the $147 billion of newly printed paper dollars in 2020 made up less than 10% of all the money that was currently at that time in circulation. Now, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, sometimes also called FRED, which I believe is a great source, and this is an actual data source, about 25% of all the U.S. currency in circulation has been printed since January of 2020. That is above average. The common trend over the past 50 years has been that the money supply doubles about every 8 to 10 years, and we're definitely ahead of the average in the increase in our money supply over a three-year period, 
but not as much as some people were led to believe. So if we look at this data source here, an actual data source, there was a historical amount of newly created currency, both digitally and physically, but that record was for the first quarter of 2020, in which we saw a 10% increase in the money supply. Something that we'd generally see over a 12 to 18 month period and not three months. Increasing the money supply doesn't necessarily lead to inflation as long as GDP matches or outpaces the increase in the money supply. The real issue was that during a period in which we had a record amount of newly created currency, we had negative GDP growth, which means we had more dollars chasing less products and services. There can be other factors that exasperate the situation, but the cause of inflation has been and always will be more dollars chasing less products and services. So what are the actual numbers? Well, the most recent consumer pricing index that was released in July of 2023 by the Bureau of Labor and Statistics are showing us this overall inflation currently at 3.2%. Now, the reason I have those five commodities listed is because they make up about 70% of the average household budget in the US, which will be important later. Now, some people have used this to show that we're getting a grasp on inflation, but I believe that is misleading. It's misleading because it's unadjusted. It's showing you inflation from an unadjusted 12-month end. And when we look at prices, well, at, at this time last year, the prices for a lot of goods and services spiked. For example, here when we look at gas, gas spiked last summer. So at the end of July in 2022, the average national price of gas was $4.35. And if we look at July of 2023, the average price for a gallon of gas was $3.72. So you can see how this can be misleading if there is a spike in prices. Now when we look at the adjusted numbers, they look something like this. When we adjust them for the overall rate of inflation, overall rate of inflation at 6.5%. And yes, some of those commodities did go down or not increase as much as we expected, such as gasoline. And when we include the current rate of inflation for this year adjusted, it looks something like this, an overall rate of 8.7%. But there still are some commodities that show a decrease. And things such as energy have not increased at a rate that some people might expect. But I think to get the true impact of inflation, what we need to do is we need to measure it over an extended period of time. When we look at inflation over a five-year period, it looks something like this. When we look at inflation over a five-year period, this is what you actually get. The overall rate of inflation over the past five years has been 20%. Gas has increased by 20%, energy 20%, food almost 30%, health insurance over 35%, and shelter, shelter being rent, mortgage, etc., has increased by almost 25%. However, I do need to be fair and I should adjust this inflation for the average wage increase over that same five-year period. And what that gives you is this, or what I'll call real inflation. Now, when we look at real inflation, right, the average wage increase over the past five years has been close to 15%. 
So real inflation is at an overall 5.7% increase when we factor for that wage increase. Gas is increased by 6%, energy 6%, food almost 13%, health insurance 20%, and shelter almost 10%. But lastly, and I promise this is the last point before I move on, what we really should adjust for, or what I'm going to adjust for at least, is we should adjust for household spending. Now I pointed out earlier, the reason I selected these five commodities is because they make up 70% of the household budget. So shelter at 10% and that making up 30% of the average household budget, the way inflation feels when you spend your money actually might feel like about a 10% increase. Now this is obviously not good for us at an economic whole because we need the average wage to increase at at least a uniform but realistically a higher rate than inflation does. If it doesn't, then the standard of living for the average American is not increasing, it's decreasing. So what has to happen in order for us to deal with inflation? Well, we're currently seeing this. We need to devalue our currency. We're seeing this with the increase in interest rates and we need to stop printing new currency. This is also beginning to happen. The other thing we need to do as active members of this economy is we need to be more productive. Production needs to increase. More products, more services, more jobs. What we need is we need to increase our level of productivity to equal or outpace the amount of newly created currency. So what actions can individuals take? Well, as I mentioned, and I'm going to harp on this, be productive. Another thing that you could potentially do is, well, inflation is great for debtors. What do I mean by that? Well, let's just say you have a rental property, and that rental property is currently renting for $1,000 a month, and your current mortgage or carry cost is $500 a month. Well, inflation is going to increase rent. So let's say rent increases to $1,200 a month. Well, your mortgage has stayed the same, so you've increased your margin by doing nothing. So some other things that you could potentially look at, can you take advantage of leveraged assets with low interest rates? Is there a way to create rental income? Maybe you have a home that's currently at a 3% interest rate that has increased in value. Is there some way that you can use that to create rental income? Or is there some way that you can use that to your advantage? Do you have the potential to extend any lines of credit that have a low interest rate? In the current environment, that might be difficult, but if you can, that could be something that could help you deal with this. And if none of these are an option for you, well, there are programs out there that allow you to become a passive debtor, such as a DST, a Delaware Statutory Trust, private REITs, not publicly traded REITs. Publicly traded REITs actually have very strong ties to or very strong market correlations. So I don't think they're great. They're a great investment to become a passive debtor, that is. Uh, LPPs and DPPs, those are limited partnership programs and direct partnership programs. There's also sometimes something referred to as a tick, that's a tenant in common. These are all ways in which you can become a passive debtor. Another thing I want to touch on here is that during times of market uncertainty or in a down market or periods of high inflation, another degree is not necessarily a solution, right? So it's a common trend that when the market takes a dive, especially for an extended period of time,
people would think, well, maybe I'll go back to school, get a graduate degree, law degree, something along those lines to make myself more marketable. Well, we actually saw this after the housing crisis in 2008. In 2009, we saw the highest enrollment in law schools ever. And then three years later, right, it generally takes about three years for somebody to graduate from law school, we saw the lowest starting salaries for attorneys ever because we had a saturated market. And it's likely that a lot of those attorneys spent a lot of money and got a lot of debt because they went to law school. Law school is not cheap. This could also incentivize the printing of more currency and interest rates tend to be high during these periods. And the reason that could incentivize the printing of more currency, well, 92% of student loans are actually government loans. So we don't want to incentivize the printing of more currency. That being said, I am a proponent of higher education. My point here is just that it's not necessarily a solution if the market takes a dive. Now, some concerns for employers. Well, historically, high inflation coincides with a high rate of turnover or shorter employee tenures. And historically, inflation also coincides with high interest rates. This makes maintaining competitive wages or COLA wage increases, COLA being cost of living adjustment, difficult, right? Because if inflation has increased by 5% and you give your employees a 3% raise, well, they don't actually get a 3% raise. They technically got a, they technically got a negative 2% raise. Another thing that we're currently seeing attracting new employees and retaining old employees has become much more difficult, as we've already alluded to. Job openings currently are staying open 67% longer than they were in 2018. And last thing, as I am harping on here, employee retention. The average employee tenure has decreased to 4.2 years. That's about half the rate it was 15 years ago. And this creates a cost for employers. The longer an employee sticks around, the more profitable of an investment they become because they become more efficient. And there is a high cost associated with employee turnover. On average, it takes about 1.25 times an employee's salary to replace them in both actual financial and opportunity costs, right? So if an employee if, is making $100,000 a year or you're paying them that, or that's what it costs you to employ them, well, replacing them costs you on average $125,000. So it's much more cost effective to keep them around. Now, just to point out some of these economic conditions here, if we look at this chart here, this is showing the rate of inflation and the rate of unemployment from 1958 to currently. Right, the red line there being inflation, the, the gray line being unemployment. And at first glance, it does look like there's a correlation. However, when we look closer, there is an inverse relationship between the rate of inflation and the level of unemployment. So every time inflation spikes, unemployment dips. This is particularly bad for employers because during periods of high inflation, you have a smaller labor pool, which means that you as an employer need to be more competitive. And something that exasperates that problem is interest rates, right? As I mentioned earlier, high inflation has always historically coincided with high 
interest rates, which we are currently seeing and experiencing. So if you need more capital to be more competitive, well, money is literally more expensive. That is, if you're obtaining it through loans. So what actions can employers take? Well, as I mentioned, be productive. Employers are the fuel to our economy, right? Whether you're a sole proprietor or you have a small business where you have maybe five or ten employees or you own a large business that's doing a billion dollars a year and you have thousands of employees. Employers are what drive the economy, so be productive. The other thing you can look into is creating more robust and customizable risk management plans. Right? Insurance premiums have greatly increased and that cost is obviously being passed on to the consumer at both the retail and commercial levels. Another thing we've seen after COVID is underwriting has become much more strict or stricter. This is likely due to a lot of insurers wanting to offload some of their higher risk clientele. The, another thing that should be focused on is insure risks that are more specific to your business. So, so I actually ran into a business and uh, that entire business, they transported antique cars, antique or classic cars. And when they actually looked at their insurance, they had a very cheap insurance policy, a very cheap property and casualty liability policy. The reason it was so cheap was because there was an exclusion in that policy that did not cover antique or classic vehicles. So they had insurance that didn't even cover them. Now, customizing your insurance can all be done through something referred to as captive insurance. Now we do have an older episode with a good friend and colleague of mine, Tom Backrab, where we really dive into what captive insurance is, but I'll cover it at a high level. So what is captive insurance? Well, it's a form of self-insurance, right? At some point, generally when a business starts paying a lot in insurance premiums or they're hitting higher levels of revenue, general, general rule of thumb might be about $10 million. It makes sense to evaluate this. One thing, you'd, one thing you want to look at is, well, what were your insurance premiums? And I would generally exclude health insurance in this, right? But what were your insurance premiums over the past five years? Let's just make this easy. Let's say that your insurance premiums over the last five years, all your lines of liability, property, casualty, etc., were $500,000 a year. So that means that your business paid $2.5 million in insurance premiums. But then you also want to view your claims, right? So let's just say that, yeah, you paid $2.5 million in insurance premiums, but you had less than $500,000 in claims. Well, you get you gave away over $2 million that you didn't necessarily need to do. Captive insurance is a form of self-insurance that allows you to retain a large portion, in some cases up to 90% of those premiums, in an insurance company that you create. So you get to keep a lot of those premiums. And this can be this can turn your insurance premiums into a profit center. It also allows some more customizable risk management. It allows you to insure certain risks that you can't necessarily do in the traditional insurance market. And if this is the first time you're hearing of captive insurance, it's not too surprising, but just to give you an idea, captive insurance or self-insurance, it makes up more than 50% of the property and casualty insurance marketplace. A fun fact, Allstate 
one of the largest insurance companies we know of now. It's actually a Fortune 100 company. They actually started out as a captive insurance company. They started out as a captive for Sears Roebuck. So what are some other actions employers can take? Well, again, and I'm going to harp on this, be productive. Increase our levels of productivity. One big benefit is actually providing your employees customizable benefits and wellness programs. This can actually be done with tax credits and it greatly increases employee retention and production. We've utilized something called a PTR plan or payroll tax reduction plan, which is something that you can review if, you're, if it's suitable for your business. Now, how do we know that it increases employee retention and production? Well, that's because according to the human resource experts, right, the SHRM, the Society of Human Resource Management, better benefits greatly increase employee loyalty, right? So according to those experts at SHRM, Society of Human Resource Management, one-third of employees, this could mean that one-third of your current employees are seeking new employment specifically due to benefits, right? Obviously, uh, health insurance or health care and insurance tends to be the most important benefit that employees look at. But one thing that was surprising to us is that 76% of millennials cited benefits customization as an important factor for increasing their loyalty to their employers compared to 67% of baby boomers. Now we have a couple of theories behind this. Uh, my theory personally is, well, Millennials, they were the first generation that actually entered the workforce and could stay on a family benefit plan until their mid to late 20s. So they could be in the workforce for the better part of a decade before they felt the actual impact or cost of insurance. And millennials make up the vast majority of the labor market now. So again, according to these human resource experts, uh, well, 50% of them said that HR initiatives decreased company health care costs. And we've actually seen that as well. We have actual numbers and data that support that. <clears throat> Two-fifths said, two said the wellness initiatives decreased unplanned absences. And, uh, and one-third said that these wellness initiatives increased workplace productivity. And what does this result in? Again, according to those human resource experts, well, expanding employee benefits and wellness programs increases employee retention by over 59%. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means if you have that average employee tenure of 4.2 years and you increase that by 59%, well, you've just increased your average employee tenure to 6.7 years and you're, real, and you're retaining a huge opportunity cost there or reducing a huge opportunity cost. Now, when we came across this, we wanted to really kind of look into it. So we actually did a case study for a client and what we looked at was we looked at them as a labor market competitor right so we looked at their eight largest labor market competitors these are the other employers that they're swapping employees with or that are attempting to uh, to poach their employees and vice versa and we looked at the average growth rate the average the average employee growth rate over a two-year period the average employee tenure compensation and that benefits rating. The benefits rating is what is what current and former employees were actually rating the benefits out of a five-point scale. <clears throat> and this client, they were below average in every area that we researched. 
But one thing that we noticed and that you can see here if you're if you're able to see the chart is the companies with the three longest employee tenures also have the highest benefits rating. So it seems that the data, at least the data that the research that we did supports this idea. And being that this has been in place for a few years, we're actually seeing that increase. All right, and I mentioned this is this is through something called a PTR plan or payroll tax reduction plan. And what that is is it's a fully customized voluntary employee benefit plan that allows employees to recapture their tax dollars and apply them towards better benefits for them and their families. I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but it but a PTR plan tends to have significant financial benefits for an employer as well, not just in keeping those employees around longer, but we actually see a pretty large reduction in payroll taxes, right? Employees pay payroll taxes, employers match that. Well, we see on average between a 10 and 20% reduction in those payroll taxes. We also see a significant savings in healthcare premiums as well. Now, that's it. That's all I'm going to discuss today. Uh, if if you had the mental fortitude or discipline to stick around for this long, I greatly appreciate it. And, and as always, if you can give this or any of our content a like, share, follow, subscription, etc. Not only is it greatly appreciated, it is a phenomenal way to support a veteran and owned operated business. Finance for Thought is independent of American portfolios. Any view and or opinions expressed by speakers are not representative of said companies. This presentation and all material within it are for informational purposes only and does not provide tax, legal, accounting, or financial advice. Neither APFS nor its representatives provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please consult your own tax, legal, or accounting professional before making any decisions. Securities offered through American Portfolios Financial Services Incorporated. Member, FINRA SIPC. Investment Advisory Services offered through American Portfolios Advisors Incorporated, an SEC-registered investment advisor.